thank you all for being here. We're going to um, uh, talk about Al, the person and the artist. Uh, we all knew him very well, some cases, at least one case, intimately. Uh, <laughs> Lu Louise is going to begin the program by uh, reading some things, so please explain. Well, I just wanted to um, also uh, say that it's a pleasure to see so many people here who will be interested in hearing a little more about Al Hirschfeld. I got to know Al Hirschfeld in the early 1960s when I attended his dinner salon with my first husband, producer-designer Leo Kurz. Al had drawn his production of Rhinoceros with Zero Mostel and Eli Wallach. It's in the exhibit outside. We were welcomed by Al's lovely wife, Dolly Haas, a former German film star. Their daughter, Nina, became a famous theater child because her name was hidden in his drawings. I was always the youngest person there, and so at these social gatherings at a, as a historian, I listened carefully to the stories of aches and pains related to creativity in the theater and cinema. One night, there was almost a fist fight between um, Walter Kerr and playwright Paddy Chayefsky about a new play that he had written. But mostly it was a special crowd that graced the table. Always interesting and lively conversation. Beautiful Gloria Vanderbilt with Sidney Lumet, who described film noir in New York City. Silent film star Lillian Gish. Still adored D.W. Griffith. Edward Chodorov would get excited over being on the blacklist, and <laughs> who wouldn't? Harold Rome had written a musical of Gone with the Wind. Journalist Andy Rooney and Arthur Schlesinger analyzed the Kennedy years. Ilya Kazan would say, Al and I don't have to talk. We have a solid friendship. I remained close to Al and Dolly after my first husband died, raised my two sons, and began to work in television. Al was alone, and we decided to get together in 1995. I then joined him as a first night around Broadway. Once we were detained in Times Square because of traffic, when we arrived, a producer shouted, Al Hirschfeld is here, now the curtain can go up. He was entranced by every performance. Absolute attention was paid to various aspects on the stage. It was a state of reverence, a real love affair with the theater. During this period, we sailed to Europe, traveled across country, and had a very active social life. I was a link to his past. Although he lost many old friends, he was able to make transitions, as he did in his art. This stage is filled with some of those friends, and Alex Witchell is in the audience. Not only did Nina give him two grandchildren, but I bought two sons, Jonathan Kurz is here tonight, their wives and four granddaughters into the mix. He worked every day in his barber chair, and after lunch he ascended to the fourth floor, and he would say, I'm going up to the mines. And that's where he worked until the end of the day, until the end of his life in 2003. Thank you. So, I'd like to hear from both of you how you first met Al, how you first encountered him. Did you encounter, you probably encountered his art before you encountered the person, but. Yes, I certainly encountered his art first. Um, 
and was a great fan of his style of drawing. It was so unique and so clean. And the thing that I always thought remarkable about Al was, even to the end of his life, uh, and he died at what age? 99 and a half. 99 and a half. But who's <laughs> counting? He was, still he was still drawing, and those lines were still absolutely clear, absolutely sharp. I mean, it was amazing. But the first time I ever met Al was, it was set up, I was doing a, a, a CBS morning program from New York, and they sent four of us from that show over to have our caricatures done by Al. And Dolly was alive at that time. So I got to meet him and go up as he did the caricatures and stuff. And uh, that was a great treat. And then I didn't see him for a long time. And then a lovely actress named Mala Powers, who was a friend of mine, called one time and said, would you like to go to a party at Al Hirschfeld's house tomorrow night or something? And I said, well, that'd be great. And I was thinking it was a party, like <laughs> a lot of people. Well, what better thing than to go there and have nobody there except Louise and Al Hirschfeld <laughs> and Mal and myself. So we, got to, we had this wonderful evening. And the thing that was so great about that evening was the chance to talk to Al. And, of course, I was very interested in the theater, what it was like when he started out in the theater way, way back. And he, he had no interest in the theater way back at all. He was very much a today kind of guy. He would say, I'd say, it must be thrilling to, you know, to have like 75 new productions every year. He'd say, but most of them weren't very good. <laughs> and, and I'd say, but they'd have all these great musicals and everything. He said, those girls had big legs. They, they couldn't dance and everything. And he said, and you'd go to the theater and it would rain outside. And you had a tuxedo on because we all wore tuxedos to opening nights. And it was muddy. The streets weren't paved. So you'd step in mud, and you'd have mud on your shoes and on your pants legs. And he said it was terrible. It's much better today. Well, I love that attitude and that outlook. But where one of the most, one of the high points of my life certainly had to do with Al and Louise is that, and, and you were very much involved in this, is when two books came out. One, Al Hirschfeld on Broadway, and Al Hirschfeld in Hollywood. And they kind of had you do New York things with Al, and they had me do California things with Al. And they set up this big deal at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in California. And it was an evening saluting Al Hirschfeld. Now, this was before, <laughs> before Al, well, Al was certainly famous, but this was before he became so iconic that he is now, which Louise, is, as the keeper of the flame, has helped make it so. And so we didn't really focus on Al at that point like we should have or like we do now. But he certainly was well-respected. My worry was that nobody in California was going to be that aware of Al Hirschfeld because he was no longer in the New York Times every day. And, you know, whenever you got a Hirschfeld, it was... It was, a, you know, it was nice, but it was not a big, big deal, as you well know. And, um, and, but what I, hadn't, what I hadn't realized was that at this point, California was made up of ex-New Yorkers. <laughs> and they all knew Al Hirschfeld. And it was a packed house, and he was in a great mood that night. And I also had a great last-minute idea that saved the evening for me. 
is because being aware of how interested he was in today, not yesterday, my first question to him was, Al, what have you been doing today? <laughs> and so he related what he had done that day. He'd done some artwork. He, I think he was doing a special commission for somebody and all that. And he's the one that took us back to the past. He eventually took us back to the days with Chaplin when he and Chaplin were friends. And, and they were, what island were they on? Uh, they were on the island of Bali. On Bali. And, uh, and what it was like <laughs> back in those days and everything. So that worked out well. He was so elated by the reception he was getting from Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft and all these Carl Reiner, all these New Yorkers that were now living <laughs> in California. It was one of those glorious nights. And, and from then on, I had these wonderful evenings, and then I'm going to shut up and let somebody else talk, <laughs> is one of the great things was to go to their house for dinner because they always had about eight or ten people, and you never knew who was going to be there. You could go there, and there would be Kurt Vonnegut and Gloria Vanderbilt, and there'd be you know, Tommy Toon and Carol Channing, and there'd be this one, you know, sitting at the table talking. Uh, there, Arthur Gelb would be there uh, talking about the New York Times and these great lively conversations. So from somebody like from, for me, from California, that's used to sitting and, you know, talking about the grosses of June Allison's latest movie. <laughs> yeah, this was like, this was like paradise. Paradise to enter into this new world. And, and it, it not only buoyed Al and kept him young in his 90s, but it was just a terribly, terribly exciting time. The only thing wrong with those evenings, I have to say, is Marge Champion was usually there. She kept getting smaller every time you'd see her, and she wasn't very big to begin with, still isn't. And she drove a car, kind of a truck, and she lived at the Manhattan Plaza, I lived at 57th and 7th. She'd always insist on driving me home. And she drove like a bat out of hell. I was worried during the whole meal I was going to be dead by 11 o'clock. And she'd go down the street. But once I got home and I'd look back on the evening, it was, it was enchanted time. So that's my, that's time to out. Thank you. I have to say, driving with Al oh. will also be a daredevil experience. Oh, yes. Uh, I did that once, only once. I think we did it once or twice, and then, oh, I think we'll walk. Uh -huh. Hal, tell me about your his early history with Well, I, I didn't, for the first 50 years of my career, I never met Al Hirschfeld. Uh, I would uh, be in... Uh, technical rehearsals, uh, pre-previewing on Broadway, and uh, this man would be sitting in the house, the empty theater, and I'd be running up and down the aisle getting things organized, and, and he'd be doing what would be ultimately his caricature of the show. And uh, I'd say, who's that, each time? And somebody say, that's Al Hirschfeld. And then when you look back, he'd been, he's gone already. But he'd done what he had to do. And then you waited till the Sunday of the opening, pre-opening, and there'd be the Hirschfeld caricature. And it was a prized thing, because everybody waited for it. 
and the company of actors all uh, eagerly waiting to see whether he'd chosen them for the uh, his artwork. And, uh, and then, of course, what I did was I got an advanced copy of it and, and made copies and put them in faux silver frames for all the people who were in the caricature. And then Margot Feigen, who represented him, would write me a very nasty letter and threaten me. <laughs> and, uh, and I never went to court with her. <laughs> and also I never... You're one of the few who didn't. <laughs> and I also never stopped. Yeah. But uh, the, the oddest part about all this is that I actually uh, didn't meet him until relatively recently. Uh, I was in Berlin at the Adlon Hotel with my wife and Louise, and he were there. And... Uh, Judy, I guess, was in the lobby with right. you two and had just run into you and said, when, when this elevator door opens, Hal will be in the elevator. And I was coming down to join her. And uh, it's almost, if not the first time that I ever talked to Al. <laughs> and, uh, and we decided to have dinner the next night, I think. And uh, we had a terrific dinner. I... Uh, uh, my wife and I eat early and, uh, and go to bed early <laughs> and wake up early. And uh, uh, so we had dinner probably about 6.30, quarter, 7. A wonderful time. He was uh, full of anecdotes at that point. The, the whole business of, of dredging up the past, he dredged up plenty at that meal because <laughs> I've never heard of anybody who remembered so acutely and accurately so many people, such a vast number of artists that he ran into, and over such a uh, long period of time. So the, the uh, artistic cultures kept changing and changing and changing, and he was experience, had experienced all of them. In any case, we finished this elaborate dinner in the Adlon, and we looked at each other and we said, well, it's been a lovely evening, everybody. I guess we'll all go upstairs. And Al said, no, no, we're going to theater. <laughs> so the two of them went off to theater, but first telling us a list of what they were going to see. They were popping in at something for half an hour and something else later and so on. And uh, uh, that continued every single night as I remember, in that you were in Berlin. You That's went right. to theater every night, but not to one show. <laughs> two or three shows, apparently. And, uh, and we went upstairs and went to sleep. <laughs> uh, uh, we were the old folks. Uh, the, 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 that was the first time I actually knew the man. He, he was iconic. He was, uh, made history, and I certainly was awed by his history and by his self-effacing, extraordinarily modest nature, which, which was certainly, uh, it was not a theatrical personality at all. And uh, so one night we were invited to dinner. Louise said, come to dinner. <coughs> and we went, and uh, at that point Al was 99, just about 99. <laughs> if maybe edging on 99. 
And uh, we went to dinner, and it was, it was just thrilling. Because all my life I'd heard about that house, and all my life I'd heard about the barber chair <laughs> on the fifth floor that he used to work in. Uh, and uh, he, we saw it all. And, uh, you know, he, he moved us from one floor to another. And, and uh, so by the time we left that night, I think we felt we'd made good friends. And we did. Well, the, the wonderful thing about both these uh, men speaking about their experiences is that, um, that with Hal and, and this extraordinary dinner in Berlin, Hal revealed his entire feeling about the city and what it meant to you and how it influenced you in the theater. And uh, uh, it, was, it was just wonderful for him to hear those things from you. And, and likewise, when you talked in the Samuel Goldwyn Theater with a thousand people there and people wanting to get in and, and, and standing in the back, um, Al remembered the, the Russian theater and how he went to Moscow and, and uh, drew Vakhtangov and, and, and then the Russian uh, cinema with, with um, Eisenstein and how he tried to convince Sergei Eisenstein to come to New York and do a film about Harlem. It never worked. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about you? Well, I, uh, I was lucky enough. Well, Louise and I had actually known each other before. Oh, that's way, right. That's when, right. Before you were, I think you were a, a widow, but you were not. It was way before you were uh, going out with uh, Al, <laughs> as it were. Um, it was my good fortune to meet Al, not so much because of the Times per se, because he was never at the Times. You know, he would just, the messenger would bring his boards with his art, but because of his closeness to Arthur and Barbara Gelb, um, Arthur had hired, was the great managing editor of the Times, former drama critic there, and had hired me at the paper and was my mentor, and then Walter and Jean Kerr, who were um, two of the most remarkable writers and people, just a fantastic couple, and I had actually succeeded Walter as, as a drama critic, and they were all lifelong friends, basically, and, um, and Al was sort of the artist of the group. They were writers and editors, and Al really was sort of slightly bohemian, you know, real artist. I, I had also learned a lot about him because the first book I wrote in the, in the, when I was still a drama critic in the mid-80s at the Times, was about um, the set designer, Boris Aronson, who did his greatest work with Hal, all the, the Fiddler and all the uh, Prince Sondheim musicals. And um, by the time I did the book, uh, uh, Aronson had died, but I did it with his widow, uh, uh, Lisa. And one of the big sort of weird moments in the Boris Aronson and Al Hirschfeld Al Hirschfeld careers would say they collaborated with Vernon Duke oh. on a disastrous musical in the 40s uh, <laughs> called The Sweet By and By that closed in Philadelphia. And Sid Perelman wrote the book, another good friend of theirs, and uh, the stories of uh, the disaster around that. And I, of course, brought it all up with Al and 
uh, I met him, and, and he was hilarious on the subject. But you know, one thing about him, his relationship to the past and looking to the future, one thing that always struck me as sort of a lesson in life uh, that I got from Al was he's very unsentimental. He's sweet, lovely, generous, but very unsentimental about the past. Um, one of Alex's, my favorite stories, and Alex has put it in print at, at one point, was uh, in the mid-1990s, Christopher Plummer was doing um, a one-man show about uh, John Barrymore. It was a big hit and gotten great reviews. And, of course, Al had been a good friend of Barrymore's in the 40s. He'd drawn him in Hamlet and uh, uh, loved Barrymore. You know, he was drunk, but he you know, loved him. And so we ran into Al at a dinner party, and we said, you know, we saw... We saw Barrymore, and we really liked it, and thought Christopher Plummer was very good. How, you must know, how did he compare to the actual uh, uh, John Barrymore? And Al said, Chris Plummer is much better Barrymore than Barrymore. <laughs> <laughs> Barrymore was so hammy. Uh, and uh, a less comic, but, but uh, and, and while he could be, he was wonderful about the past. He had incredible recall, and I remember having a conversation with him where he described going, hanging out at the Palace Theater in the days of vaudeville with Houdini between shows and describing, Al would describe Houdini's hands, and I think he had drawn Houdini's hands as well as Houdini himself at, at one point. But an, another example of, of, of Al's lack of sentimentality or sort of realism was... Um, it may have been in conjunction with these two books. I can't remember what the pre pretext was, but at the Museum of the City of History of New York, not this institution, I was to do a conversation with Al on stage, and it was scheduled for like three weeks after what would turn out to be 9-11. And there was a lot of discussion about whether it should be canceled or postponed, and it was just when people were going out again, and the, and the theory was... We'll go ahead and do it. And the most vivid thing I remember about that conversation was, if, if as most of you were here, then the, the gloom and the, you know, it was still when you could, you know, it was 9-11 was a, literally a physical cloud that was present and the city seemed very dark and it was an incredibly depressing uh, time. I said, you know, you've, you've arrived in, New York when, like, in Bronx was a wilderness. You know, you see pictures of Al as a child. It's like in farmland, you know, in the Bronx. It's crazy. I said, you've been here so long. I said, I said, is this the worst uh, um, time you've ever seen in New York? And he said, no. He said, it's not as bad as the Depression. So the Depression, people were starving in the street. There were soup lines and bread lines. So it was so... So bad, that's, I think, when he went to Bali, that he went with Sid Perlman, they, they escaped, uh, because he said it was too depressing to be around, and that it was such an interesting perspective, and I suspect the correct one. I think, you know, he had that judgment. Um, but one other thing, there, there, there are a couple, there's an antic side to Al, I think, perhaps, Louise, your best position to film these stories. I love the sort of, if you don't mind, if you... There are two stories involving 
previous women in his life. One was when he mar married Dolly and discovered, like, going to City Hall that he hadn't gotten divorced from his previous wife. <laughs> <laughs> They're, like, driving in the car. Is that, is that right? You know, he told it's us, true. <laughs> it's, 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 it's an amazing story. It's in, the, it's in Susan Dreyfus's film. He That's said, right. He, he said, um, uh, well, we're on our way to, I think they got married in Baltimore, and, and, uh, and then he realized that he hadn't gotten the divorce papers from his previous wife. <laughs> Now, that's a, that's a nice wedding present, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> also, perhaps not so amusing uh, to Dolly, whom I also knew as, as you did, but the gas station story? With, oh, yes. There's a, do you I, know it? I, I haven't heard in years. I oh, need, oh, you oh, have to tell it. Oh, okay. So, so Al and Dolly had gone to Florida. Oh, one of the things about Al's driving was <laughs> that he loved to drive. He said it relaxed him. And uh, so he had a very large car. He was a rather small man. And he had a very large blue Cadillac. And he drove that to Florida with his wife, Dolly. And they went to visit some friends. And then he went to a gas station to get some gas. And she went out to go and have a soda. And he just got in the car. And he... And he kept talking to Dolly. Um, uh, <laughs> Dolly, what do you think about that scene over there? And there was no answer, so he stopped the car, and he realized that he forgot her at the gas station. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I, I just want to say um, um, one other thing before I forget it, and that was uh, there were so many fascinating levels about Al Hirschfeld. And uh, we made a trip across country uh, to go to the opening of The Lion King, which opened in California. So we took the train because he didn't fly. And I got him a lot of crossword puzzle books, and, uh, and we did some crosswords um, going over. And I realized that he finished the whole book. And I said, I can't believe it, that, that, you, that you have this vocabulary that you're not using when you're talking. You know, everybody thinks you're sort of Damon Runyon, you know, type uh, <laughs> straight answers and you're, and you're very honest and direct. And, uh, and then I realized that, that there was so much more of a foundation just like his art. You know, he started as a sculptor and then he became a watercolorist and then he became a caricaturist devoted to pen and ink. And so there were these levels in his art as there were in his personality. Um, I just wanted to say something. I'm looking at Alex Witchell. And in uh, the, the year that Al Hirschfeld and I um, were exploring the idea of getting together, uh, his wife had passed away, and I was alone, and um, uh, my husband had died many years before. And Alex Witchell went up to write a piece about Al for the New York Times. And she finished her piece, and I think I have this straight, and she, and she saw a picture of me uh, on, on, in the studio somewhere. And, and he said, and she said, well, who is that? And, and he said, well, that's the girl I'm dating. And she <laughs> said, you're dating? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I read this on the Lexington Avenue bus. And I, and I, I let out a scream. And, and um, I, I called Al immediately. He said, well, I wanted to surprise you with this. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so that was the first time that our relationship was made public, mm-hmm. and it was really wonderful. Uh, I wanted to say one thing about the the um, the table, the dinner table, and the salon, which impressed which impressed me at a very early age, and that was that there were people at the table who had wonderful careers in the past. They had run movie studios. They were no, no longer doing that. They had received an Oscar for a movie. They had produced a play. They were going to produce a play. They didn't have any money anymore. But they all came to the Hirschfeld table, and they were all treated in a very democratic way by Alan Dolly Hirschfeld. And it was a wonderful example of friendship. And that's something that, that really stands out in my memory that I perceived as a very young woman. Well, I, you know, Al was in no way a snob about anything. He wasn't a snob about art. He wasn't a snob about the theater. And like a lot of artists, I think, he had a childlike quality just the way he, you know, when the Internet happened and he was, oh, yes. you know, he was, a lot of animators in Hollywood were very inspired by him, as, you know, as, I think is also in Susan's film and taken with him. Um, and he was very game. I remember him poking around the laptop computer and, oh, yes. and fooling around with some kind of software. Um, but he was sort of open uh, to anything. I also have the impression, you know, in the theater, which is, shall we say, uh, you know, all about Eve is, is not an exaggeration. There's a lot of, <laughs> back, I think Hal can certainly te- testify to this, a lot of backstabbing and bitchiness and rivalries. I never, ever, maybe I'm, you know, fooling myself, but I never heard of Al having an enemy. He never gossiped. You're absolutely right. He never talked about people uh, behind their back, for instance. And uh, there was a, a, something very democratic about, about the way he treated his friends and his um, uh, co-conspirators at the Times. He loved journalists. He was actually a visual journalist, and, and that was a, a, uh, one of his, his great, um, really one of his great um, pluses in life. And um, how, how, many, how many times do you meet someone like that who has this extraordinary personality who, who can calm things down? And uh, he had a, a teenage daughter in the house who was going to Brearley. She had vivid red hair bright red hair. I remember seeing her on her, uh, at a Christmas party uh, at, at, the, uh, at the Herschel's, and she came down the staircase, and, and boys were swooning at her feet. <laughs> she had this vivid red hair, as her mother did, and uh, uh, she had a pretty hard time li- living up to um, the theatrical um, seat that Al, Al Herschel gave her. I also have to say, you you took such good care of him <laughs> in the later years of his life and kept putting those dinner parties together that he wouldn't have been doing on his own. <laughs> and That's for sure. Kept, Although he did cook. <laughs> yeah, but you kept, you kept interesting people coming into your home, conversations going that meant a lot to him. Well, that was really and, wonderful that you remember that. I remember oh, Andy, Andy Rooney saying, you know, I never thought I'd make a friend after the age of 75. <laughs> but he was, he did. And I, I remember one night in particular, um, who was the English um, 
uh, Day Medna. Do you remember? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember Day Medna? Day Medner and, Car- and Carl Reiner and Walter Cronkite all came to dinner. <laughs> Why, when you say that, I picture Walter Cronkite in drag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been hilarious. But also <laughs> so each one of the, each one of, now wait, there was one other person. Oh, well, well the, the man who played Day Medner was a real intellectual. He was so bright. He was, he he knew modern art and music. It was a great surprise, and he and all of the, these comedians. I think Woody Allen was there, and they tried, and and they tried to top each other with how they got started, and uh, and uh, uh, and and Carl Reiner would would imitate uh, some southern um, people that he met when he was on tour, <laughs> and and Dame Edna. Uh, to, told a story about uh, doing Hamlet in uh, in in the Australian uh, back back with Zoe Caldwell. They worked together as young actors, but he told the story particularly. He said, "Well, during my recent uh, Dame Edna performance, he said I threw gladiolas out at everyone in the audience, and I realized that I hit somebody uh, in in the middle of the of the orchestra and." Uh, the next day, my my manager got a call from a lawyer, who said <laughs> who said that um, that, I, that that his client had been sexually offended by a gladiola dropping in his lap. <laughs> I mean, these stories were just wonderful. And as Walter Cronkite left, he said, "This is the best show I've ever seen." <laughs> One thing I'm curious in the privacy in the, of your home and your marriage. Did he, when he went to draw a show, and if could he tell if something was like a complete turkey? Oh yes. And he and 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 was his instinct correct on that score? Well, I I, I think he had he had some private feelings about various things, but he was very much uh, uh, someone who would not uh, give his opinion in order in order not to hurt anybody. But one night there was a severe snowstorm and we were at Lincoln Center and after act one, I said, Al, we should really go because (laughs) we won't get a cab. And sure enough, he said, I'm sorry, but I won't leave. I don't want anyone to see that I'm leaving. So we left in the middle of a snowstorm. We didn't get a cab for quite some time, but he upheld his his feelings about the the theater. Wasn't there a period when as I recall it, he he drove to every opening yes, he and always found a parking place right. on the street <laughs> in the he, theater district, in the Broadway theater district. That's right. In, in the days when there were parking spaces, he would also park in front of churches and synagogues <laughs> <laughs> and never get a ticket. One of the nice things that they <laughs> one, one of the nice things that, 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 that Alan Dolly did uh, when I was married to Leo Kurz, I had two young sons. They always came on Christmas Eve with presents for the children of their friends. And the back of that big blue Cadillac would be loaded with presents, and Do- Dolly would come unannounced and, and, and present a present, you know. And everyone would be shocked. And I'd run to the window and look down, and there, with this, there was this big Cadillac with presents in the back seat. It was such a nice thing to do. I, I would... I get serious for a second because Please. it seemed to me that 
without exemplified tradition. And uh, that tradition is something we lived for from year to year to year to year. Uh, it was in the times, but it was also a kind of all-enveloping tradition in the theater. Uh, the theater and film forever respected and honored and celebrated tradition in a way that it does not anymore. And uh, so why don't I introduce something really sad to this conversation? <laughs> but I feel it very strongly. And knowing that we're talking about Al, I thought that's actually what we all hung on to. Was he was powerfully traditional. And the dinner that we had, I viv vividly remember that we talked a lot about Russian theater and about his experiences in Russia. And I'm besotted with Russian theater, as Frank knows. Uh, German theater, similarly. And you were off to see, I guess, the Berlin Ensemble, which wasn't so good in those days. No, but you were off <laughs> to see Brecht's house, as I remember, and, yes, the next day. Wait a minute. That's where I'm going. <laughs> I, I think I, I got his attention big time. <laughs> When I told him not so much that you wanted to see Brecht's house, where Brecht and Weigel lived, but that you wanted to see the cemetery behind Brecht's house. And he said, what, what, what do you do? And I said, well, you just ignore the apartment, the building, <laughs> and you go to the back, and there you see uh, Hans Eisler, Ruth Berghaus, the Brechts, who of course, being Brecht's, had two huge stones which had no names on them. <laughs> but you, they, they, and right next to them, uh, Heinrich Mann and mm -hmm. Nellie Mann. All a little enclave in back of the Brecht house. And that really got him. Oh. I don't know whether he ventured forth, but I hope he did. Um, uh, you, you would remember. You're, you're mentioning something now that I also want to add, that, that Dolly, um, Dolly Haas was a, was a very, very fine actress. I went to the Berlin uh, Film Festival with her in 1982, where they honored her. They had a program called Exiles, and so there were six people they were honoring, and Dolly was one of them, and Elizabeth Bergner was another, and um, the woman who was the star of Mädchen in Uniform, and um, a couple of men, uh, Claude Bois. And I was very lucky. Unfortunately, Elizabeth Berger got sick. And so I sat in her chair to all of these movies and events, et cetera. But I, but I saw her films, and she was like a young Mary Pickford. She was absolutely mm -hmm. wonderful. And I got a lot of respect for her as an actress because I had never seen anything. But at the dinner tables, there was always someone who had been in exile. My late husband, uh, Leo Kurz, was. And, and uh, uh, there would be a musician, an actor. Uh, uh, but there was always um, someone there to remind Dolly and Al about the terrible times in Germany when Dolly left, and le left her career, actually. She had my crazy. She had overlapped a bit with Billy Wilder, right? That's right. Over she there, a, she was in a film called Scampolo, which was done 
1928, the first film that he had ever written. And so it was a charming uh, German film. And, uh, and she had also maybe the, uh, had the strange position of, of touring in the 1940s in America with both Yul Brenner and Nancy That's Reagan right. exactly. and, and Nancy exactly. Davis in a play called Loot Song. That's right. Yeah, during it, the it, war. It, it, I saw it. You saw and? it? <laughs> <laughs> what else? <laughs> but I, I just want to say something uh, about Loot Song. This is really, uh, I, I went, we, we went to a party, at, at Gloria Vanderbilt had a party for Nancy Reagan, and, and Al went up to her and said, I remember you from the chorus of Loot Song. She said, I was not in the chorus. And she turned her back. She said, I had a, I had a major parole. <laughs> she didn't speak to Al the rest of the night. <laughs> you know, what, talking about Hal's point about the tradition of the theater, one thing I was been reflecting on, um, Al reluctantly but ultimately made sort of a piece with the idea of color coming to oh, the yeah. print. And he did some very interesting color work. But, you know, the print paper is now on its way out. It probably will be out in a, in a few years. And, you know, you look at uh, in the exhibit here to see as his drawings sprawled across the front of Arts and Leisure, then known as the drama section, in the 1960s and well past that, well into my time at the paper, that's, that's ending too. And, and to me... Al's work is so much logo of the theater that even now people just constantly rip it off and not go, but, it, but it's in little, you know, drawings in Playbill or in an ad, and it looks schlocky, it'll look like the real Hirschfelds, but that whole use of the line and using that in journalism and the way he did it, it's not going to exist. Yeah, that's it. That's well, they it. stopped, well, the yeah. Times stopped uh, publishing Al's caricatures yeah. for a chunk of time and there were a lot of complaints, enough <laughs> complaints to have him reinstated. But <laughs> he did, it was just, you know, it was a, but, you know. It was an outcry, wasn't it? There was, <laughs> there was, there was an outcry. You bet. Also, I think they could sell advertising against it, uh, by the way. They figured out after the fact that maybe they were oh, fighting. Really? Yeah. You know, uh, they always figure this stuff out late. But uh, that's that's why we're we're in the position we're in. But um, uh, also, Al, the other thing about Al that uh, he did have politics. He did have this, and you can see them in the exhibit here. That during the depression, and he did this kind of acidic political stuff, and and it went and had a one drawing, sort of anti-war drawing, a really kind of brilliant one, rejected by the Times in the what, in the late 1930s for being communist. Oh, yes, right. And um, uh, I think it's time to take questions. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, we'd like you, if you want to ask a question, please line up at the two mics. We don't have a lot of time, so please limit uh, yourself, anyone who wants to ask, to a single question and not a speech, <laughs> ideally. Does anyone, um, who has a question? Nope. Ah, Jack. <laughs> they have one over here. Okay. I, I, I have a simple question. My daughter grew up racing for the Sunday paper every Sunday morning so she could count the Ninas. Question, whatever happened to Nina? 
Well, uh, uh, Nina uh, lives in Austin, Texas. She lives a very quiet life. She has two children and some grandchildren. And she um, li lives a quiet life and is happy there. And um, she came to the opening of the exhibit last week. For a few, she was in New York for a few days, and uh, I, I must say that it was it, it was a little hard for her, as described in Susan Dreyfus's film, The Lion King, where um, she said it was just hard growing up after uh, after so much acclaim as a young person. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, that's about it for Nina. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, this is a question I always wanted to ask. I guess directed to Frank Rich is. It's so important for a show to have that full front page on the Sunday Times. Did Al choose what he was going to draw, or did the Times choose which mm. shows were going oh, to be? I, I think it, I, my guess is, if memory serves, is it was a collaborative decision. Look, in most weeks, it was clear what the major opening was. It might not turn out to be the big hit or the best show, but if you have... Uh, and, and, and it was interesting because I think there's an example again in the exhibit where the same week Glass Menagerie and the Barretts of Whipple Street were, so they had dueling Hirschfelds and that would sometime <laughs> happen you know in, particularly in the heyday of Broadway where you could have you know an Arthur Miller play and Harold Prince musical opening the same week they'd figure out a way to make it work uh, there were also some weeks where there was the show was obviously second or third tier, and it would if it was alone, it would do. There, that was a time when there were so many plays opening in any given week that your job as a producer was to suss out the night when you could open when you would get the first string critic. <laughs> of the New York Times. Well, I was keenly aware of that. <laughs> and by the way, there were certain times when the first string critic would just be uh, otherwise engaged for some reason <laughs> when he had a sense of what projectile was moving toward him. Uh, <laughs> or her, excuse me. But, but, my, my other but, question but, was... But Jack, I wanted to say one thing, yeah. and that was that, that uh, when Brooks Atkinson and uh, Al would go to a theater to see an opening. In those days, they were allowed to go to the openings. Uh, right, they did, you didn't Critics go to previews. went to the openings. How invented the idea of going to previews, actually. Yeah. Uh, yes. uh, and, and, and so Brooks Atkinson would have to run out of the theater, and he had 45 right. minutes, is that right? Oh, or so, or, or an hour, to write his review. And then on Sunday, the Hirschfeld uh, drawing would come out, and sure enough, both men had 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 taken as a highlight of each play. Each 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 of them found the highlight, and Al did it with pen and ink, and Brooks Atkinson did it with his review. It was an amazing thing, and they hadn't they, they never spoke to each other about the plays mm -hmm. because that was a kind of very private. Hal uh, said something that I'd never occurred to me that he might have been allowed to come to some of the rehearsals and prepare some of the drawings. I always oh. imagined him in the dark there, trying oh. to make notes. <laughs> oh, no, and, and it, was, it, it was very clear, even to me as a kid growing up, because he would o it would always say by his signature, in addition to the number of Ninas, it would say Philadelphia or New Haven, because uh -huh. you couldn't 
brilliant as he was, you couldn't draw, you know, to do the quality of work so, that he did, you couldn't do it on deadline the, the way, say, a, a hack theater critic could, you know? So, <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and so, and, and indeed, if you were a real theater nut, as I was as a child, you'd sometimes delight in the fact that very once in a blue moon, there'd be a, a, a troubled show, a, clearly a troubled show was opening on Broadway, and, and Al had done it early enough that a member of the cast seen in the drawing or a character had been written out of the show <laughs> or replaced. You know, shows like We Take the Town. So, oh wait, those, that character is no longer in it. You know, but no oh, one would know or oh, oh, care. That, except. So that was my last question. So he cho he chose then which people he wanted to include. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to say one thing relating to what you said. Um, Arthur Miller had come over for lunch with his wife, who was photographing Al, and so Al said, "Oh, um, why did you come upstairs?" And they came. They went to the studio. And um, uh, sure enough, he was, Al was drawing Arthur Miller's sister, who was an actress. Joan Copeland. Joan Copeland. Well, he saw, the, he saw it, he said, oh, this is just wonderful. I'm so glad that she's being drawn by you, this and this. So the Sunday paper appeared, and Joan Copeland had been replaced. Dr. Jazz. <laughs> I think it was Dr. Jazz. Anyway, I remember the show. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> Hi, Louise. Nice to see you. It's been a long time. Uh, last time I saw you was 18 uh, January 2003, um, when Al couldn't, couldn't draw me that day. And it was very nice of you to, uh, to take pictures of my mom and I, and I appreciated that. Oh. Um, I, my question to you is, uh, I guess Hirschfeld, his first art teacher was Charles Marx. He was good friends with Sam Marx. And he, his last drawing was of the Marx Brothers. Did you ever see him or hear of him having the Marx Brothers come over to his home? His, uh, no, I did not know him during that period. But certainly, uh, I knew Sam Marx, who was a great friend of his, who was hired by Irving Thalberg to um, to run the MGM Writers Division at and in the 1930s. And so Sam Marx always, when he was uh, at dinner. He always had a story about F, either F. Scott Fitzgerald or S.J. Perlman at the writer's table and what went on. And poor Fitzgerald had to have his uh, lines rewritten by Herman Mankiewicz the next day because mm -hmm. they were not quite good enough. In the movies, that is. Thank you. <laughs> so we have time for um, one more question. Is there someone who has a question? Yes, I do. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> so <clears throat> when, um, by the way, I'm Dale Gregory, the program director here at New York Historical, and Louise Hirschfeld and I met early on to discuss this program. And Louise, I remember you telling me, if I remember this right, there were a couple of people who you told me you had interesting stories while Al was drawing them in the studio. Am I not remembering that? Uh, in, in, in other words, um, uh, he, he would engage them uh, in, in, in conversation. Well, or did, did he have Frank Sinatra in the studio? No, he did not. Oh. No. I, I, I just remember some sort of stories. 
Um, is there someone, all of you? That would have been before my time. Okay, or is there, <laughs> before we end, is there someone he drew who all of you might be able to say oh, oh, something I, I, about? I think, I think I know what you mean. Um, Winton Marsalis came up with his instrument and he serenaded Al going up the staircase. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, Tilson Thomas, um, uh, Michael, Tilson. Michael Tilson, Tilson Thomas saw the grand piano and he played the Rhapsody in Blue for Al. Oh, mm. And then there was a quartet that came up. I've forgotten their name. The Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> he drew them beautifully. Yes, he did. <laughs> no, it, it was, a, it, it was a, uh, an Asian string quartet. And, uh, and I said, why don't we set them up uh, in the living room so that uh, Al came down out of his studio. And so they played for him. And it was a wonderful drawing. But but people were, oh, and another time, Billy Joel came over with uh, uh, with someone who was chore choreographing. Um, um, Twyla Thorne. Twyla, mm. right, right. And they had a wonderful conversation. And Al didn't quite know about Billy Joel, but he found out pretty fast. <laughs> <clears throat> I want to say one other thing about, um, I was, it was 1968, and uh, Hare had opened on Broadway. And I don't know if you remember this drawing of Hare, but when I saw that, I said, I can't believe that Al Hirschfeld was able to capture this new generation. I remember the drawing very well. As and, and how, if, if you look at that drawing, you'll see that there was a man who was able to, to transcend time, not only in his life, but in his art. Well... You know, I just want to say, I've never said this before, that sadly, it's time to end. Oh. <laughs> um, this, this is a beautiful, beautiful talk. The, all of you, we thank you so much for coming. Thank you. I, I just uh, want to friend. say that I hope you'll, you've all seen the exhibit, which was curated by uh, David Leopold, a very talented man that's been working with me for many, many years. And he's written this book called The Hirschfeld Century. And, and the, the exhibition's filled. open tonight till oh, 8 it is. 15 oh, great. for you. And the book is in our museum store. We do thank you all. You know, I'll just get this in. I usually do when I introduce, I ask how many are members with us tonight? Wow. So wow. there's lots Great. of members, and we invite, the, we thank you members because your support helps us with all our programs and our all kinds of events. We invite you, those of you who are not yet members, to join the family. You will help produce wonderful programs like this. And Frank Rich, Louise Kurz Hirschfeld, Robert Osborne, Hal Prince, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you.